today they call uh, in the Buddhist calendar Atami Bucha. It's the day we recollect the, from the life of the Buddha. It's the day when they collected or when they held the cremation uh, of the Buddha seven days after his Parinibbana and then collected the ashes, the relics. It's interesting in the life story of the Buddha from the text we know when the Buddha was born or the Bodhisattva was born his mother passed away after seven days and then after his enlightenment he said he spent the first seven days sitting under the Bodhi tree experiencing Vimuti Sukha the happiness of liberation the liberated mind free from suffering, free from delusion. And then seven days after the Parinibbana, they held the cremation and <clears throat> they said Ananda, his attendant monk, had arranged for the body of the Buddha to be wrapped in 500 pieces of pure clean cloth <coughs> and placed in a compartment um, um, with some oil in it and with uh, fuel probably timber, logs and branches underneath ready for the cremation and all the leading kings who had faith in the Buddha eight of them were gathered all the Sangha and the laity were gathered but they couldn't start the fire so the legend is that the Devas were holding it up waiting for the arrival of Venerable Mahakasapa, who's another important disciple of the Buddha, played an important role in leading the Sangha throughout uh, the Buddha's life. And as was his habit, he was wandering in the forests quite far away from where the Buddha entered Parinibbana, so it took a while for um, the news to travel. He, had not, he wasn't walking to see the Buddha yet because he knew he died. But along the way he met one Brahmin, they say was carrying a special kind of flower that legend would have it only grows in the heavenly forests 
Sometimes they call it the Himalayan forest, but the heavenly Himalayan forest. <coughs> and as soon as Mahakasaba saw this Brahmin walking towards him with holding this flower, he immediately sensed something extraordinary must have happened to do with the Buddha. Otherwise this Brahmin wouldn't be holding this particular kind of flower. It's not something that a person would normally be carrying along with them. So he asked him what's, what's happened, what's the news? And he's told that the Buddha had passed away. So he, him and the monks hurried up, rushing back to towards Kusinara. And the devas held up the lighting of the funeral pyre until he arrived so he could join into that ceremony. And then after the cremation the next morning, as is the custom, they collected the ashes, the bones. And uh, there was some dispute in the way of the world. These eight kings all feeling they had a special right to the relics of the Buddha. This is what uh, faith can do when people have strong faith, but it's not yet fully matched by wisdom, then it can still promote conflict or sense of self, which leads to conflict. So the kings were arguing, even ready to fight over how the ashes would be, or what would happen to the ashes of the Buddha. So they say, Dona the Brahmin, a wise Brahmin managed to negotiate so that every king got a, a share of the, the main ashes and bones. And perhaps for his trouble, Dona also got a share of the ashes. They say there was a ninth lesser king who got the, just the very uh, refined powder that you get after the main bones and pieces have been collected. There's a fine powder of, of Datu. The ninth king got that. So they managed to split up the relics, the ashes of the Buddha, peacefully without going to war. And they took them back to their respective kingdoms and built appropriate stupas and from there no doubt have the relics and ashes of the Buddha have gradually spread around the Buddhist world right until today. They say when the Buddha entered Parinibbana, as we know he had given warning three months before and he exclaimed that the Buddha doesn't enter Parinibbana until his duty is performed, his duty being the establishment of the Dhamma Vinaya so that it's firmly established with the fourfold assembly of bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, lay men, lay women, so that it, the teachings and the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path can continue on for future generations. 
So he had done that duty. So he could enter Parinibbana now. And then at the time of his passing, they say they could separate between the, the monks who were arahants and those who were, say, Sodapana by their reaction. The ones who were stream winners or not yet Aryapugalas were crying and the arahants were not crying of their perfect equanimity, stability of mind and perfect understanding of the nature of sankharas are impermanent. All of us must die. There was no sadness or overwhelming emotion on the occasion because of the power of their insight and the purity of their minds. It's a useful reflection for us. Even the Lord Buddha was still a human being with a human body. It's like Sankara Kanda. When it reached 80 years, succumbed to illness and passed away. Whoever it is in this world, whether it's the Buddha, the Arya Sawaka, kings, or anybody else, we all must die. It's always a sobering reflection, recollecting that even the Buddha must die. Nobody lives forever. It's a way to reflect, to meditate, to contemplate to arouse heedfulness as the Buddha encouraged us. It's a direct cause for heedfulness, apamada, to arise in our mind when we bring it to contemplate, recollect death. We don't know how long we've got, we don't know when we'll die, but we do know we will die. And bringing sati to bear on this, practicing Maranānu Sati, recollection of death. Maybe down, refining it down to the reflection on death, every in-breath, every out-breath, is a reflection on the impermanence of this body. All we, our raw materials for the practice are this body and mind, what we have right here, right now. And the reflection on the impermanence of the breath. You breathe in once, you breathe out, you breathe in again, you breathe out. You're refining your sati and your wisdom down to that single point where that really is the nature of our existence. Very transitory, fragile, and at any moment something could happen to end this existence. And reflecting like this brings up heedfulness, carefulness, paying attention to ourselves, to our lives, because 
we realize we're not going to be here forever. Then when we re- recollect the Buddha, Buddha Sati, that's one of the values is we recollect the when we recollect the the night of his enlightenment, the special knowledge he's, he gained and then used to help teach throughout his life. The knowledge of the recollection of past lives and then knowledge of karma and how beings go according to their karma. They arise and pass away from existence to existence according to their the fruits of their karma. We may not ourselves have full those full knowledge of experience, those full knowledges yet, full experience of those knowledges, but we may have some intuitive faith in the Buddha and in the Arya Sāvaka who also back up, confirm what the Buddha taught, that we are beings who are subject to the law of karma. And the law of karma brings us here when we're born. It's affecting us through our lives and then it will take us on to our next life if we haven't yet reached Nibbāna. We can't yet fully verify that maybe through our own practice. We've had the good fortune to meet with the Buddha's teachings and meet with living teachers who maybe have verified these truths, which gives us some energy and effort to put into our own practice rather than stalling or finding excuses like many people do, even Buddhists, saying we can't be sure that there is such a thing as the next life or the round of birth and death. When you think like that, you tend to look more towards seeking whatever pleasure and happiness you can find in the present and often not so mindful or aware of the consequences of your actions because if you don't accept teachings on karma, then you tend to focus on this life and often will assume when you when you die that's it the end of the story so it doesn't matter about the future so much but when you gain some faith in the buddha and the arya sawaka then part of this arising of heedfulness is that the awareness that what they say probably is true even if you can't fully verify it at least it's most likely to be true because of their wisdom and clarity in so many other areas that maybe we can already verify. And in that case, if it's true, then you have to be heedful and aware that everything we do has consequences and that our time here as human beings is precious because it's limited. We won't be in this world forever. We won't have this opportunity to practice forever. And we still have to face future lives. 
and future suffering. Whatever stress, suffering we've experienced this life, we're almost certainly going to experience next life. So one way of looking at the practice is when you're facing doubts or laziness or uncertainty about the practice or choices whether to practice or whether to follow the worldly way, looking for more worldly happiness, we can reflect on this and say maybe I'll just dedicate this life to the practice even though it's difficult and challenging. If I don't do it this life, I'll have to do it next life, so I might as well do it this life, now that I'm here, now that I'm practicing. So Ajahn Chah had a phrase he'd often repeat about how he just gave up to the Dhamma Vinaya for this life can't say anything about past life, future lives, but for this life, just give everything to the Dhamma Vinaya, sacrifice everything. And from an early age, he seemed to have made that decision. He said it made his practice go very smoothly, because that was always the, the guiding force, the direction in his life as a monk. And when making decisions, gave him certain power and certain values which he could adhere to. The way our minds work because of our previous conditioning is we often have doubts and uncertainty arise and then we might follow the way of mental defilements, the way of more selfish behavior, more indulgent behavior, the way of aversion, the way of delusion. But if we come to a decision that we're going to commit to the Eightfold Path and the practice that the Buddha gave us, the way of training for liberation, it kind of puts the mind at ease because however many problems we encounter, however difficult it is, we know what we have to do. And even though it might take a long time, we have the patience to keep practicing because we've made that decision. As long as we haven't made that decision, then of course our more and negative mental tendencies always have space in the mind to slip into our thinking and our behavior. So reflecting on the Buddha's life and the life of the teachers and what they've taught us is always a, a good input into our practice. It brings us back to why we ordain, why we're here, and may help us to arouse some of that faith and commitment to the practice. As we become more heedful, one of the things you notice is the sense of the awareness of what is good and bad karma becomes clearer 
and sharper, not just in our external behavior, but in our, just our thinking from moment to moment. And the sense of shame and the sense of the, the fear of the consequences of negative or unwholesome, unskillful actions becomes clearer and sharper. And we, as we become more heedful, we really want to look after our minds. You don't want negative mind states resting there, taking up space, because we know they're the cause of suffering. And we really want to root them out. So we have more clarity and more energy to, in doing this. The more we practice, the more the Hiriyotipa comes up. The more we look after our minds. It's a bit like the kitchen. We clean up the kitchen building. We've renovated it. Made it, you might say, a better building. And then once you've got a clean space to store food and have the food put out every day, you don't want mice or rats or pests there. So now if a, a mice, a mouse or a rat comes in, you very quickly you want it, you want to catch it. So we have a, a trap to do that. So it can be removed, put out in the forest. Our minds are a bit like that. Once we become more heedful in our lives, we start practicing meditation, mindfulness, contemplating the Dhamma, and you understand more clearly what is a wholesome Dhamma, what is unwholesome Dhamma, then you don't want there to be any space for unwholesome Dhamma to lurk or hide in your mind anymore. You want to clear them out, the unwholesome thoughts, quickly. You need to develop the tools to do that. The, the regular practice of mindfulness, clear comprehension, the regular effort to do that, and the regular frequent contemplation of the Dhamma. So over and over again, we're bringing our mind back to, the, to itself, to this body, this mind in the present moment, and really learning from our experience what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what are the results of wholesome dhammas in our mind. They bring peace, clarity as a result. <clears throat> they promote more wholesome dhammas the more we develop them. Unwholesome dhammas agitate the mind, make the mind dark, we lose our clarity, the mind becomes blurry, uncertain, unhappy. The more we practice, the more these two directions of thinking and inaction become clear to us. So we don't want to indulge the unwholesome negative mind states that come up. They may still continue to come up, but now we really want to root them out, let them go, abandon them. Part of our contemplation is to you train the mind to develop insight into the basic truths of existence to help us in this process of clearing out the mental defilements and replacing them with the Dhamma. You keep bringing ourselves back to 
the reflection on what we call the universal characteristics of existence as we experience them in this body and mind. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. They're nothing far away from us. They're nothing mystical, not some special teaching that only certain people can aspire to or understand. They are what they're described. They're universal characteristics. So developing anicca sanya, dukkha sanya, anatta sanya, and the perception of impermanence, perception of stress or dukkha, the perception of not-self in our experience of this body and mind from moment to moment through our day. These are valuable tools to help us free the mind from some of the delusions that have been bothering us for so long. When you go walking in the wilderness, it's helpful to develop some of these perceptions that you go to the wilderness, there's no one around, it's quiet, peaceful, no sound, no person. Very quickly gives a sense of serenity to the mind. And then when your mind drifts off to more worldly thoughts, you can see them very quickly. You can see the changing nature of the, the mental landscape with this serene backdrop, say when you're in the wilderness, just walking along, or contemplating your body and mind in the present moment. And a negative thought comes in, you see how it arises, see how it passes away. <clears throat> Contemplate the impermanence of things, how many different issues, problems that you may have been mulling over or had in your mind. Often they, you go into the wilderness in a quiet place, just drops away because it doesn't seem very important. You see how temporary they are. And that's a perception you can keep bringing up even when you're not out in the wilderness. You bring up that same perception, you carry it around with you. Notice problems, stressful thinking, worries, how they just arise, they pass away, that's their nature because they're sankharas. Or dukkha, the dukkha of painful mental states, painful memories, painful thinking or even uh, just the pain of the body when you're walking, if you go for a long walk you might have periods where you have aches and pains but see how they just arise and pass away and see how the nature of this body is painful we're constantly moving to hide the pain, to escape the pain whether we're sitting or walking or even lying down, we're constantly rolling around when we lie, lie down. As we sit, we're constantly moving our legs and arms to avoid pain or itches, different sensations. As we're walking, we might even shift weight from one leg to another. Or when you walk a lot, then you want to sit down because you want to have a rest. And the body is painful. In its nature, it's dukkha. 
And the mind is doing the same. The mind is moving from object to object. It's restless. It settles on one object, and then after a while it wants something different. It wants to think about something different, or look, or find out some new information, have some new experience. Even the most satisfying state of samadhi, it doesn't last, and then the mind goes back to movement again. Thinking, wanting, wondering. So the perception of dukkha, again, it's right there with us all the time, but we have to make it a tool, it's a tool for reflection. We become aware of it in our ordinary experience. These are just ordinary perceptions in our day. When we refer back to this body, this mind, we see this, the transient nature of the body and mind, see the dukkha of the body and mind. And the lack of self in it, I mean, there's no, ultimately there's no person or creator or controller manipulating all this. Things happen according to causes and conditions. They're not self in that way. And you walk in the sun, you get hot. You go into the shade, you feel cool. That feeling that arises, there's no self in that. It's just nature. It's just the way things are. You focus your mind on some unpleasant experience and indulge in a negative thought, and then you experience aversion. You focus your mind on pleasure, a pleasurable experience, where you feel pleasure, you feel happy. You may delude yourself, think you're doing that, but the arising and passing away of pleasure or pain, happiness or aversion, these are conditioned experiences. And there's no self in that. You remove the causal conditions and that experience disappears. If the causes and conditions are not right, it won't come up. We all like pleasure and want pleasure, but we can't always get it. Because the causes and conditions are not always there. And this is not self. Not self in practice. We'd all like to feel comfortable in our bodies all the time, but it's not possible because bodies react to different experiences. We experience hunger, thirst, heat, cold, tiredness, different aches and pains, illness, and so on. It's not self. So Lumpur Cha reminded us, you know, we, we study the texts and the books and listen to the talks and that's useful, but we have to learn how to read the natural mind, just read this body and mind by developing sati and wise reflection, turning our own experience into the food for wisdom to, to arise. We don't actually have to have a lot of special knowledge or go to some special place. Rather, we have to learn <clears throat> how to turn our attention back to our own body and mind in the present moment. And that's where the Dhamma unfolds. He used to say, Lumpur Chao used to say, if you're feeling stressed or suffering, 
you must be attaching, attaching wrongly to something. So where the suffering is, you'll find the attachment. So we, we learn from the stress, from the suffering. And often when we simplify things, then it makes it easier to do that. There's less distraction, less chance for the mind to just run away from suffering. We actually face it and go through it, and that's where we learn. So like when you're in the forest, you're sitting, walking in the forest, there's so little dis to distract you that you have to just learn to be, bear with whatever's arising in your experience. The pain of the body, pain of the mind. This is the way we get stronger, right? Patience, our endurance increases. <clears throat> and our understanding increases, because if you've been through a bit of stress and suffering before, then you can draw on that experience over and over again. And you know it's just impermanent, it's not self. This is how our mind gets stronger more powerful in the practice. And often it's just the very ordinary experiences we have that we bring mindfulness and insight to bear on them, to develop them as, as food for contemplation. Often that's where understanding arises, that's where peace arises. When your mind sees this is just the way things are. In the end, you know, the Buddha and the enlightened Aryasavakas, they've all had to practice with the same set of five candors as we do. They all had a body, a mind, feelings, memories, thoughts, sense consciousness. And their raw materials were no different than us. But they managed to develop the qualities to deal with their own body and mind. The faith, the effort, the mindfulness, the samadhi, the wisdom, until those qualities were firmly established, until the Dhamma was firmly established in their hearts and minds. And the worldly Dhammas were less important. They're just passing transient experiences. Praise and blame, gain and loss, good fortune, bad fortune, pleasure and pain. You know, these are the worldly experiences. They come and go according to causes and conditions. But the Dhamma is what grows through the practice, and that becomes your real refuge. So those enlightened Savakas or the Buddha, that's what they relied on, is the Dhamma, and that's what made their mind strong, peaceful, happy. So I'll leave you with these words for your contemplation tonight, and tonight is one prayer, we can uh, dedicate our practice to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and uh, we'll practice until midnight.